you can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real Welcome one and all to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. We are each other's chosen movie watching and podcast family, thank goodness. But to begin 2022, we've uh, we got three movies that were all made in 2021 about... Uh, what happens when you're forced to spend time around a specific event with your non-chosen family? Uh, wow, what a really unnecessarily complicated way to say miserable family get-togethers. Perfect. Well, I I depend on you for your brevity, um, just like you <laughs> depend on me to eat up airtime at the beginning of the show. <laughs> just so I can like warm up and like do a couple you know shoulder rolls and a couple of yeah lunges. you got in like several meditation exercises while I lost the entire audience we're we're off to the races here uh, New Year same us um, Noah how how are you how are, did you did you uh, survive the holidays No <laughs> yeah me neither No well, um, it's nice to make your apparitions acquaintance Totally yeah we're recording on the other side. Uh, no, I'm fine. Uh, the holidays were good. Good to see a few more people than last year. Um, got to do a little work travel as well. But uh, recharged, refocused, uh, ready to take 2022 uh, by the horns. Wow. All right. Okay. So we're here to talk about uh, the humans, Shiva Baby, and Spencer. Uh, three movies that... Uh, that my uh, short-winded friend over here says have a very bad family gathering in common. <laughs> yeah, they're all they're all basically bummers. Indeed, they are. It's it's a hell of a way to start. It's good to know that here on uh, the other side that they still have uh, dour independent dramas. A twenty four has a distribution deal uh, on the other side. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, Showtime, we get that too. Topically speaking. These these are these are different films. Uh, you know, one is set uh, Christmas yeah, nineteen ninety one in in Norfolk. Uh, Lady Di and Spencer, uh, Shiva Baby is is what happens when a, a depressed twenty uh, two year old full full of lies surrounded by lies goes to a Shiva. <laughs> is that one in New York or is that in Jersey? I depend on you to answer this. Shiva Baby was shot in my neighborhood, in Brooklyn, in Dimas Park. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And uh, The Humans is what, set in, set in Chinatown? Yeah, in it's like lower Manhattan somewhere. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, they're all kind of movies linked with being trapped because of lies and truths that you can't tell to people that you love. These movies have like some really uncanny similarities um, from eating disorders to timely bathroom breaks to... Every, as a rule, everyone has super haunting strings in the soundtrack. Um, and all, for none of them being horror movies, they are, all have absolutely like plenty of horror movie moments. And not even like, oh my god, that's a horrifying family, but like actual horror movie vibes. Um, totally. Yeah. There, there's easily somebody like getting murdered with a knife by the end of this, end of this thing. It's always threatening to happen. 
We should say real quick that we are uh, jazzed to be on the Playlist Podcast Network with such shows as the Playlist Podcast, Deep Focus, Fourth Wall, uh, The Discourse. Get the get the network wherever you get your podcasts: Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. And we always appreciate a kind rating or comment. Thank you, folks. Noah, how did you want to tackle today's category? What's what's first course? Well, since they're all released this year, uh, this is Last the only year. time where I think alphabetically makes sense. Okay, which. Does the T, does the the in humans? We're not counting the T in the humans. <laughs> Great. How about our first S- synopsis of 2022, please? <laughs> God, you, you love to like, that was the equivalent of like calling a timeout as I was like running to kick the ball. Yeah, I totally just iced the kicker there. You iced me. You iced my synopsis. The humans, 2021... Set inside a pre-war duplex in downtown Manhattan, The Humans follows the course of an evening in which the Blake family gathers to celebrate Thanksgiving. As darkness falls outside the crumbling building, mysterious things start to go bump in the night, and family tensions reach a boiling point. Keep seeing these ads for that zombie show on TV. It's awful. I can't believe people want to watch that kind of stuff at night. There's enough going on in the real world to give me the creeps. Great. Thank you. To the Blake family Thanksgiving. To the very special Chinatown edition of the Blake family Thanksgiving. Dad, you won't get any reception up here. You have to lean up against the window. Yeah, but now lean in. Smush your body up. There you go. So, are you balancing a job with all your studies? The main reason I'm not done with school yet is because I was depressed for a bit. I'm fine now. In our family, we don't have that kind of depression. Dad. Whoa, come back to Earth. Sorry. No, we just have a lot of stoic sadness. Based on a play by Stephen Karam, who also directed this movie, uh, won a Tony in 2016. It stars Richard Jenkins and uh, Jane Houdichel, who this is her role as the mother from the play. She's reprising it in the film. Um, they are visit their parents visiting from Scranton, Pennsylvania, and the apartment you mentioned in the synopsis uh, is Beanie Feldstein and Stephen Young are the young couple living in the city, and they've they've, they've barely moved into it. Right, the moving truck is a- across town. Well, for some reason, yeah, it's not only Thanksgiving, it's also, I guess, the long weekend they've chosen to move into this new apartment uh, together, um, which is this warrenous kind of, uh, it almost feels like you're inside like an animal or something, but it's like this uh, duplex apartment that they have, like the bedroom is upstairs and then the, but the kitchen's kind of like buried on the first floor. So, oh no, the dining room's sort of, for whatever reasons, like, so they keep going up and down with food and, and, tr- and like the bathroom's in a weird spot. So, yeah, it's, it's very, it feels very sort of stagey. And I could see it kind of, having not seen the show, I feel like I could see it in my mind, just like how you would build out a stage. And I wonder how they did this. I met, I bet you, it, it was like a mixture of, um, 
like a practical apartment, but also probably a pretty elaborate studio setup that they have of it for some of those, especially in the dark sequences. Um, right. But it's, yeah, the claustrophobia is immediate for how much space this apartment occupies. It's like almost like a, like a gerrymandered district in a purple state or something. There's just like so much of it, but like so narrowly, you know, put out in all like the strangest directions to, to be the most whatever. That's very well put. Yeah, I mean, they could easily host 25 people in this, like, dead skeleton of a living room. But, like, the moment you've got to wheel Grandma, played by June Squibb, into the bathroom, it's just, like, it's everyone's going to... Yeah, yeah <laughs> lack of oxygen back there. Um, yeah, and the bat Like, everyone also has to get to the... Like, Grandma has to get to the bathroom. Amy Schumer plays the older sister who... Uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, has ulcerative colitis, not a great thing to have uh, ever or at Thanksgiving. Um, and so the, the everybody's got lots of bathroom trips up and down this spiral staircase. Um, they have this neighbor upstairs who is just constantly and mysteriously banging on the floor who they're always debating, like, should we go talk to her? Because she's annoying the bejesus out of us. Um, but Beanie Feldstein and Stephen Yeun are like, it's okay, it's okay. She's... She's 70. She doesn't speak English. We don't want to make waves. Um, I Honestly, I'm ready to like clear the floor for you just to talk about weird New York apartments for maybe 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we can certainly go there. I, but I, I feel like what's interesting and, you know, kind of universal about the way this, I don't know, this experience kind of unfolds is you have these two young people like trying out what it might be like to be adults. Yeah. And that opens this weird door for the adults in the movie to act like children. Yep. And so I feel like that's almost a universal thing too. Like when you're moving into a place like in your twenties, whether it's New York city or anywhere where there's like this weird tension between like the parent who's obviously like helping you move in, but you want to also like be like, no, this is my place, my vibe, etc. And then like the parents get very particular about like, Oh, well you have to have this. Like, let me buy you this. And it's like, okay, I don't, I don't know if I need, I don't want the Virgin Mary in my new apartment in the case of this movie. Yes, exactly. Like I want to have this space and, you know, it's also that thing, too, of let's bring my family into maybe what was a kind of intimate relationship and see, you know, maybe a different side of me in the process. And I think mm. that in this movie is such a powerful kind of raising the stakes thing of like, how religious are these people? Like, are we going to get to a point where it like maybe becomes a little culty and, you know, no spoilers, but it doesn't disappoint. Um. Yeah, the parentification switch is a is a big a big side of it, and also just a very recognizable dynamic of like being the young couple and being like, my role in this is to just be super 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 nice, and no conflict could possibly throw off my niceness game, and then you end up being the one who's really mad the whole time. Right. Feels very familiar, and you definitely see that with Beanie Feldstein because I mean she she has such a a kindness and a buoyance to her in like all performances. But by the time like she and Jane Howdeshell are doing like uh, mother daughter sarcasm battle, it's like the lines are completely blurred bef- between who's the victim and who's the tormentor. 
Well, I think the movie smartly allows these relationships to be more complicated than that. Like it's both, you know, and I think that is what is most horrific about this movie is that, you know, I mean, these are, you know, these are conversations that I feel like maybe not as extreme and maybe not on Thanksgiving as the dinner is being put together, but like conversations I've had with like my parents, you know, or they weirdly insisted on, you know, your life should look like this and me being like, well, it's, it's my emphasis on my life. Uh, but I, that's, that's, you know, such a universal thing where I think this movie gets it very right because like sometimes the kid is being a dick, right? you know, and sometimes the parent is at fault, but sometimes the parent has a good point. Um, you know, I think that yeah, Deirdre here, the mom, like oftentimes, she, like the way she's thinking about how to use the space and like things they might need, like doing that mom thing is oftentimes like something that they, you know, I kind of as a, a an audience goer here was like, why just let her do her thing? Just like let the mom be the mom and then you can change it later when she leaves. Uh, I don't know. I think that Jane Howdeshell as Deirdre is probably my favorite performance in this movie she's definitely like been in movies that i know before she was in the greta gerwig little women she was in garden state way back in the day but like she felt new to me in a way that like i recognized everybody else's established actors so much so that i i I was sort of um uh like like terrified sometimes by how by how real she seemed like it's so i've I think Amy Schumer is good in the movie. It's sort of impossible to set aside the that's Amy Schumer of it all. But um, right. Jane Howdeshell just seemed like somebody's, um, you know, despondent mother God. or, yeah, or and that, aunt. And with the, the food, too, the eating disorder that she sort of plays around with is is so sad like especially in the the dessert scene you know and showing how you know i think this happens with a lot of families but like the the you know the the passive aggression that that comes with oh like make sure she gets the one with the most frosting on it like coming from your husband is that's saying a lot more than simply you know but also there may be a bit of like give her the the thing that she wants like this is just the person she is so like is that truly sad you know or is it just i don't know sort of accepting and i think that movie the movie lives in that gray area food is definitely the locus of a lot of like the the stress in all of these movies because these families are fundamentally not whole no one can enjoy can like indulge in the way that like you're quote unquote supposed to at Christmas or Thanksgiving or even enjoying the refreshments at a Shiva. Yeah. Thank God they don't weigh them ahead of time. That would be the only thing that would have made it worse. Yeah. We'll we'll get to Spencer when we get there. Um, Whose performances did you enjoy? Who do you want to talk about? I mean, Jenkins is a maniac. Uh, He's great. Incredible. He's so good. And the turn two of the, of the secret that he, you know, needs to bring up and, you know, the way they've kind of, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that they've kind of fucked up their finances uh, and like having that sort of real conversation uh, is such a, I mean, he becomes so pathetic and such a shell of what you thought he, like you thought he was a dick, you know, he's like one of these dads who's, you know, wandering around and like noticing the, the movie's almost from his POV, like noticing all the most haunting elements of 
the apartment. And even the movie kind of ends with him alone in the darkness. So I do wonder, you know, how much of it's supposed to be from his eyes. But yeah, he's always like, you'll see him like glance off and then it'll be like, you know, paint that's like over what's like clearly water damage. Right. You with know, new these, water coming in and bubbling out. Right. And then, yeah, as the movie goes on, like the, the bumps get a little bit more bassy and the uh, the water gets a little bit more viscous. You right. know, and that's that's kind of who he becomes, too. It's like this guy's not looking out for, you know, his family and his daughter here. Like this guy is just sort of melting alive. Mm. It's a great point. I mean, because I, I think he has the we don't have to spoil this, but he's, he's sort of haunted by New York for a reason that you find out in there. He's also like the quintessential, like dad, not from the big city. Like what's this place you moved into, baby? I don't know about this place. And he's like a lifelong custodian. So he's the one who's just sort of like scoffing at the, the, like the electricity switchboard, like that'll never work. Even like that's his expression when he's around it. But yeah, I think your point is well taken by the end. You're sort of like, he, he is this place or he is more of it than, he would yeah, ever admit in is, the beginning. He absolutely like is almost the one who's most at home in it just because of its its torments. Like he yeah. almost like it's the stimulus he needs to do the to be as useful as he feels himself to be. Yeah, it's it's also a movie I think about, you know, the these prison cells that we create around ourselves and the boundaries of our lives and so good in that I mean, you can almost feel the breath of fresh air when they're on the roof towards the end. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's almost like the when I was watching it in my own, you know, New York apartment, it like the, the temperature uh, got a little bit lower with the fresh air coming in, uh, it felt like. But yeah, it's so, you know, this movie's good at and not in like a sometimes I complain about big budget movies feeling like they're very small. But this one feels so small as to like, is there a world outside? Like what's what's coming like is this a cloverfield film you know like what's anything could be happening beyond uh beyond these walls here and that's i think the horror elements that we keep touching on a couple things worth pointing out um considering stephen karam is adapting his own play i really admire the way the movie is shot um like it's a lot of like obscured um stationary cameras or you'll just kind of it'll wait for one person to walk into the frame like i think there would be a huge temptation as a theater director turned film director or playwright turned film director to be like let me like put the camera in all the people's faces like i love these characters i've lived with them for five years and let's like let's let them do the drama and cut 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 and it's the complete opposite and it really serves to make people who are so gifted at uh, gritty domestic realism like Jenkins and Howdeshell, um feel even realer when it's just sort of like, I haven't even seen Richard Jenkins's full face in 45 minutes. Right. Yeah, I think it lets the actors, too, do some real physical acting. You know, I think if you keep these all in, like, tight close-ups and are really emphasizing how cool you think your script is, then you kind of lose how 
you know, Beanie Feldstein kind of like tiptoeing around and like, you know, picking up things and just sort of, you know, sort of robotically moving. And then how like kind of like hunched over Richard Jenkins is and like reaching for things. And it's almost like the room gets bigger when he tries to like reach something that's further than he can than he can get to. Uh, Mm. And just how much space and how unwieldy to the, you know, the grandmother's wheelchair becomes you know, I think is fascinating and how they capture, you know, especially there's this great shot where it sort of shows that the front door and the bathroom door kind of, you can't have both open at the same time where you like create this, this intersection, this dead end. Uh, So, but the camera's so good at kind of capturing, you know, in that kind of horror movie jump cut, what's behind the door thing, uh, you know, these doors and, and like who's behind what and where have people gone and like who's about to pop up to say something unexpected. This is an incredibly like dark movie that is about the darkness at the center of families. I think some things, as I can sort of turn toward more judgments, some things work really well. Like there, there's a moment in Spencer where uh, coming up where Diana teaches Harry and William about tenses, like, you know past present future tense well like our family only exists in the past tense and there's a way in which in a movie like this all families only exist in the past tense like the moment where uh, june squibb who is has like late stage dementia i think like becomes lucid during grace is one of the absolute best moments of the movie but you you sort of you see that like she it's just those brief moments of like unified lucidity that they're all waiting for and like they come randomly and they will come less and less um, if, if you take her to be a symbol of, of the family. And, and even this wonderful email that they read from her, I felt like really only speaks to the, um, to the impossibility of dealing with one's family. She has this great moment where she says, uh, like, don't get so worked up, you guys. Nothing about this life was worth getting so worked up about. But then she ends it by saying, like, I love you more than you all know. You will ever know. And that, to me, is like the, the pull of dealing with one's family. It's like, if I just cared a little less, could we do this? And maybe, but love or feelings of love driven by responsibility will only, like, bring you back in harder. It's, it's a, it was a provoking movie for thinking about one's family for me. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh, for yeah. the listening audience, Chance is currently in tears. Right. That's just Pilsner. No, I totally agree. Yeah, and I think the grandmother and the looking backwards and having half the cast be like so in the future, like Amy Schumer not only, you know, kind of has some some work stuff going on, but then like has some medical stuff. And, and she's sort of dreaming of this life, you know, where she is made whole again, you know, and this apartment is waiting to like have memories made in it. But then you have the other three characters, the grandmother and the and the parents kind of pulling towards this, this past tense and these regrets and these mistakes that were made. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. It's a it's a fascinating juxtaposition with that. Um, I think my only uh, critique of the film is that the climax never felt super physical to me. Like, I feel like we spent all this time building up in this space to have like something go pop or someone to do something violent or whatever it is. 
And there are kind of those incidental moments, but nothing that's so like I wanted a character to like make a big choice and to either kill something off about themselves or in some way say fuck you to the thing that the person, the individual that isn't working and that 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 toxicity uh, that was sort of bringing the whole event down. Um, but it the movie kind of never never gets there uh, maybe it just doesn't have the ambition to but i think as a, a movie more than a play you know once you've shown us all the the pieces like i, I just doing a little bit more with them uh, i think would make for a more satisfying uh, third act yeah you could say that it's depriving you of catharsis is intentional because that's like another family theme or whatever but yeah i i'm, I'm kind of with you that i think when the when the final reveal happens you've made it like 90 minutes without that reveal and i'm kind of like is this a movie without any high drama like that's pretty impressive and then it blooms real late and then nobody quite knows what to say about it which again i know you could argue is realistic if you want and then you sort of get like a very stagey denouement about like the car is here and then right. like it's all dark and it's yeah and, and that's where running into each other and like a noise is off kind of yeah. yeah, you you just see the again. I don't think seeing the traces of theater in movies is bad, but you do in this in a movie where you really could not see much of the seams, like you really can at the end. It's no tick tick boom. It's not. In many that movie is also set in Lower Manhattan and involves bad apartments. Okay, should we tell people how we rate movies on the podcast? Known as Be to Real. The and, uh, on Be Real, we rate movies in two categories a good or bad for technical quality, and a good or bad for watchability. So, what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! Good, good movies are both well made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Tut, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. Now, I don't want to say quintessential good bad too many times on this episode, but let me say it for the first time. (laughs) Quintessential good bad. Um, Yeah. I, I think it, it, it's it's good and, and smart and well rendered and uh, bravely rendered um, for a lot of the the reasons that we've we've been through. But um, there's not a lot about the movie that like feels um, alive enough to kind of counterweigh the all the deep dark smart reads about sadness. Um, and I do think that the end is sort of like a like close the door to the creaky old theater kind of shrug. Um, yeah, it's a good bad. Yeah. The, the uh, total absence of joy of any kind uh, <laughs> in this film. Uh, or anyone's kind of, catharsis. 
anyone's catharsis. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't listen. It doesn't have to be, you know. And then they all agree to go to family therapy at the as like they no. you know check into the Plaza Hotel until the until the stuff arrives. You know, <laughs> shake Mr. This, Trump's it, hand. Yeah, uh, down the hall and to the left. Um, but I, yeah, seeing a, a character grow and change in some way is kind of the bargain that I go in for. And sometimes it's more severe than others. Um, or to see two characters come to such a disagreement about the the desire that they both have that, like, something explodes. And yeah, I feel that like one of them ha- kills the other one with a bowling pin. Yeah, exactly. You drink my... I drink your milkshake, you right. know? Um, what was the f- film I was kind of thinking of? Um, even... Uh, this movie kind of reminded me of like in Bruges where it's like, here's a weird space that I'm going to explore. And here are some like sort of quintessential characters that I kind of know from other, you know, genre films, uh, you know, sort of sad family movies, uh, shall we say, as opposed to crime films. But like, once you're in the space, once you figured out these characters, then figuring out how to tell your story within that space and having something peculiar transpire because you're in this space, like it can only happen here, uh, is part of, I don't know, the magic of that I look for in a movie. And I don't feel like beyond sitting, seeing the gritty realism of it and some great performances and like kind of a stirring and haunting tone. Um, yeah. I don't know what the, you know, the bigger draw, the, the draw would be to see it a second or third time. I think as you hit it, the, the, the tone is more stirring and haunting than like the people. Um, you just don't ever get close enough to them. Does the the title sort of implies like almost like an alien observer, like from one of the comic books that Rich is talking about, right? Like this is how right. you, you weirdos all look from a distance. Exactly. Um, yeah. And I also do think the thing that maybe uh, damns it to good bad, even though I do think it is a good movie, is like that Rich part is a little too easy for Steven Yeun. Like he's one of our great, most exciting actors. Like I'd watch him tie his shoes, but just yeah. kind of being being the nice guy over and over again, like you don't need an actor that good to do that apart that samey. Well, why don't we talk about a movie that's just a smorgasbord of fun, uh, Shiva Baby, which came out, uh, I think it did festivals in 2020, but had its release in 2021. This is a very online movie, um, like to the extent that uh, like young millennials and late Zoomers like independent movies. They like Shiva Baby in no small part because of uh, Rachel Sennett's uh, online presence. She's the star of the movie. Um, it also leads me to say that when Noah and I were uh, Emma Seligman's, who age, she wrote and directed this thing, uh, we decided to start a show where we yelled about each other about the Jurassic Park sequels, and Emma Seligman went ahead and made this movie at age like 24. So we're talking about some, some prodigious uh, dialogue-heavy talent here. I want to peak when I'm in my late fifties, like uh, character actor Fred Malamed, because that'll <laughs> then it's like all of this was working towards something. So I, I'm not intimidated by this, uh, this, this, uh, you know, this prodigy here. Sure. Right. I want to be great at losing my phone on screen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, so you open with kind of a... Oh, I should read the synopsis. 
iced him so bad he forgot what he was going to do forever. Shiva Baby, 2021, at a Jewish funeral service with her parents, a college student runs into her sugar daddy. Danielle! Danielle! Please, Sonia! More is here, and her daughter Stephanie. Jessica. Whatever. You should really talk to her, you know? No. It's just a job. Darling! Hi, 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 Mom. I'm so sorry for your loss. No funny business with Maya. Thank you. You think everyone that's bi is experimenting? You have zero gaydar. Excuse me, kid. I lived through New York in the 80s. My gaydar is strong as a bull. You can't just, like, show up to, like, the after party for a shiva and like reap the benefits of the buffet. She lost so much weight. Yeah. You think she has an eating disorder? I'm just trying to major again. Feminism isn't exactly what I call a career. It's not my career, it's a lens. So this one kind of opens with this kind of sort of Soderberghian interaction happening between uh yeah this the proverbial uh sugar baby and sugar daddy uh where there's kind of one-sided sex happening and then an exchange of funds and then like kind of a creepy like oh i care about you even though i pay you for your services but like also i could take you away from all this if only you'd let me uh kind of thing that really sets kind of a fun tone because this movie is all about shifting power dynamics. And from the beginning of the movie, you need to feel like Danielle here, the protagonist, has some semblance. It believes herself to have some semblance of agency. Like you can see in the moment when it's just her and this other guy that she has total control over this. And the life she's living, the money she's bringing in uh, – that's that's the way she's making it work. So then when you put her in this other world where her parents are supervising, her efforts to bump up against the guardrails of other people's expectations, which ultimately end up boxing her into, you know, like a 13-year-old girl's psyche or whatever, right. uh, it's, it's all the more traumatic because you know that, sure, she's maybe fucking up, but... She's also an adult somewhere else. Yeah. This is one of those uh, those rare genre hybrids, the horror farce, I think. <laughs> Shiva Baby is. I would agree with that. Yeah, it definitely is a farce. And it definitely is funny. You know, it's not sometimes. just... It's sometimes. I mean, the moment when... Her, like, the look on her face when she sees the sugar daddy, like, across the room, when she's already kind of upset with... Just the state of things. Uh, I really love Molly Gordon as Maya, who's like maybe her best friend, maybe her ex-girlfriend. And they're kind of playing with that tension. And then clearly there's this like bubbling uh, homophobia in the family, too. So they don't want the girls to be too close to each other. So like they're they're kind of like magnets being flipped back and forth. They like push against each other, but also like come back. It's it's really kind of fascinating how that it's staged. And then when you finally have that, the reveal of the guy walk in uh, and everything's flipped, then the, again, it's it's much like uh, uh, the humans. Explore the space, figure out the rules of it, and then let the plot go wild in it. And this movie does that uh, exceptionally well. And you again have a very important bathroom upstairs that needs to be visited yes. <laughs> at periodic intervals. 
yes, you have an important bathroom uh, that acts as a weird connector and foil for people. And then you just have these, again, like the weird incident of like, ah, oh, fuck, I left my phone in the bathroom. Like having that just un- unmoor this whole person's life uh, is so funny uh, and so horrifying at the same time. So when I talked about this movie on our Patreon back back in August, I compared it to like next gen Bombach. And I think the the thing that kind of sealed that comparison for me is not just like the ratatat sort of alternately like acerbic and funny and sometimes simultaneously acerbic and funny dialogue, but just sort of like the idea that everything that everyone's saying is a put on, like everything everyone says in the movie is horseshit. Like no matter who they're communicating with. And I just, I love that because I think it captures the feeling of being 22 when like you've never been more correct and less correct about everything. Um, Like you're so sure, or maybe it's not even you being correct. It's just like, you're just so sure that everyone else is fucking wrong. Everything they're saying. (laughs) And this movie does uh, Danielle the favor of like having everything everyone says be kind of, like funny and incorrect like in the the transaction you're talking about at the beginning um which it which is like pretty edgy and does clearly like show her power and uh what danielle wants out of this but also her emptiness and then uh max the sugar daddy sort of like couches their transaction in like very goofy liberalism where he's just like well i do want to support female entrepreneurs (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing, too. I think that's a, a funny comparison with him and, like, the mom, too. Because even the mom has that funny monologue where, you know, she's like, I want you to sleep with enough people in your life to decide yeah. who you're supposed to marry. Like, she's she's preaching this weird kind of, you know, uh, sexual openness, but also, like, in a very rigid framework of how she wants to do it. And then she kind of doubles back with her, with the aunt or whatever, being like, well, maybe not 10, you know, maybe less <laughs> than 10. It's just like, everybody's, like, has this weird window of, you know, uh, oh, I'm, I'm tolerant to whatever, but... There, there is this these these very rigid structures these people have not only for who they believe themselves to be but the people around them as well and there's all this like kind of funny word salad that happens when they like try to speak in each other's languages like there's this part where uh fred malamute is the dad he's wonderful in this movie um you'd recognize him from a serious man uh in other movies um where he's trying to exp- he's trying to say what danielle's major is and he he's trying he, like in a supportive way he's just like no no, no danielle's not She's, um, Danielle is gender business, <laughs> which <laughs> is great. And then there's just like the speaking in, in different languages with different priorities where, um, uh, Molly Gordon's talking about, uh, Max's wife who shows up with, uh, with the baby and she's like a successful, um, businesswoman in the city. And she's like, are you kidding me? Like Danielle, like she's so impressive. She has like three businesses and Danielle's just like three. Why three? Do they all like fail? It's a very funny movie. <laughs> well, very well written and acted. Yes. And I think it captures too an interesting moment in, you know, feminism and feminist filmmaking where we're kind of pushing back on that, like, um, 
Anne Hathaway in The Devil Wears Prada kind of thing, where the girl boss is no longer aspirational. And, you know, it's that thing, too, of, you know, I would chase my dreams if I had that opportunity, but I don't have the opportunity and I actually don't have any idea what my dreams really are. (laughs) It pushes back on it while also being like, this is, at this moment, Danielle is like a void of a person. Like, she could really use a job and a mentor. Totally. a A helping hand from anyone. But she says, I'm just not into the whole girl boss thing because she's just so sure that the wife is uh, Kate, is that her name, is just wrong. Right, just because she represents a collection of attributes that she has been told uh, are no longer in fashion by, you know, the collective expectations of her own generation. Uh, And that, too, ends up, I mean, the movie is basically her biting the hand that feeds her of everyone in her family (laughs) and, you know, the people there, too. Like, she could have any of these things. And it's not as though there's a deep irony in that what she's doing for a living is no less prostitution than what she's accusing all these other people of. Of course. Uh, Also, I'm misremembering Diana Agron's character's name. It's Kim, but I'm remembering the... Uh, Fred Malmud's character misremembering her name as Kate, but the character's name is Kim. Very good. Um, this movie, it's a, what is it, like 80 minutes? What a virtue. I fucking love <laughs> an 80 minute movie. Let me I tell you. I've seen this you. movie three times, and part of the main reason is it's 80 minutes. Everything, every movie should be 80 minutes. A lot of them would be better. The humans... Um, Humans could definitely be 80 minutes. Just end Spencer. before that. Spencer could definitely be 80 minutes. Here's the thing, Spencer, and I'm looking at you, especially Nightmare Alley. If your movie is a fable, there is no great prize in making it over two hours. It's a fable. Fables especially are notoriously short. if you declare short. it at the beginning to be a fable, come now. Yeah, especially. Does Nightmare Alley also have a pretentious title card when it says... Uh, a fable based on true events. No, it doesn't. It's just very clear that it is going is it to man be or beast. There's definitely like a moment where it leans more horror than farce is instead of like, say, Danielle and Max, like getting paired together to like do a musical number or something like that. There's just a moment where everyone in every one of these geometric conflict shapes decides like, mm, actually, I've been bruised enough. I'm the terrorist now. And they just like march up to the other person and it's just like, huh, so where'd you get that bracelet? Or are you you sure you said you were studying business? Are you sure you have job interviews in the city? I think like Maya does it, Max does it, Danielle does it several times where they're just like, it is time to lash out and scorch the earth of this. But it always bites them though. Like yes. they, it never gives the outcome they want it to be. And then, but I think the, the filmmaking is smart too, to kind of show that like when you're in a moment of conflict with family, kind of the, your vision gets very narrow and you like can get very excited and you just kind of like start word salad, vomiting, insulting right. things that relate to things that you meant to say 10 years ago or whatever. <laughs> And the movie's so good at, like, pushing in on those moments and then having that, like, hand grab somebody's arm, probably Danielle's, and then, like, it re- it reorients itself. And it's like, what the fuck did I just say? And the score of this movie is just sounds like someone playing a violin with, like, a wire hanger. It's so... Yeah. Dun, dun. Like, it's 
it's pretty close to being the theme from Psycho played staccato. Totally. It's kind of in that like Requiem for a Dream milieu. Mm-hmm. I mean, all these movies, the soundtracks definitely are. Everything. Yeah. They mean, yeah. Um, they're all hardcore tone setters. Um, I am going to speak very favorably about this movie. I think if there is is something that like stops it from being great, which is like barely a critique, I think the movie's very good. But um, I think because it's written like sort of a acerbic premise-driven comedy, but a lot of the lines, even when they're potentially funny, are more like terrifying. Um, what gets lost in there is like maybe rounded characters, and maybe that was never the point. But having seen this movie three times, I still like. I don't feel like the character of Danielle is someone that stays with me or has dimensions or means a lot to me. I think the way that she speaks is very credible. I think this movie does a great job of pinpointing a specific feeling that you can know is saying you can have, like being a 22-year-old who's suddenly infantilized when you're around all of these people. Um, but yeah, if there's like one shortcoming, it's it's just the maybe the turn toward like an earnest kind of reverse graduate ending in in the car is sort of like, oh, we're going to be sentimental now? I didn't really get that the rest of the time. Yeah. I almost think this movie is missing an integral, kind of like high-flying bird-like title sequence where you just see Danielle walking around and you kind of see like who the person she is in the world is. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. And kind of like, like Maybe her- go buy some coffee. Yeah, and like kind of see her reverse Wolfman transformation from Sugar Baby to somebody's daughter. That's a good point. Yeah. I almost feel like that would have given us so much more depth. And then when she gets there, it's like, oh, this woman's just gone through a transformation. And I'm kind of rooting for her because I saw that transpire. Because the movie doesn't, rightfully, doesn't want to give you too much of her her internals. but But I think like one more, just like have like some cool song just like rip as she's going from Manhattan to Brooklyn to go to the Shiva. I love it. Uh, just a trick to get you on her side a little totally. more. Totally. Yeah, good point. That's my studio note. Wow, look at you. Well, I mean, and if you're giving a high flying bird ask note, it's it's not that studioy. You're fine. Yeah. You're all, if Can you we shoot the, the whole movie, thing in fisheye. Right. <laughs> with a, with an iPhone. Yeah, why not? Um, but no, Shiva Baby is a is a watchable movie for how upsetting it is. As a debut, it carries immense promise. I think it's a good good. Yeah, I agree with that. It's definitely not book smart if that's what you're getting into. That's what you think you're getting into. Uh, but it is a, an irreverent. Very funny, very anxious, uh, very terrifying, and very relatable incident where one woman's, one young woman's life falls apart because of how her family makes her feel. And, you know, that's that's something I'm, I'm working through uh, in the long-running sitcom of my own life. So, And now Noah's crying. And now I'm in tears. Do yeah, good, both good. of us cry at the plight of Lady Di or neither of us to keep this even? I, for one, didn't know that uh, Diana Spencer had died. All right. Let's move on to uh, Spencer, directed by 
Pablo Lorraine of of Jackie Note. Um, he just like really was just like Jackie. Great experience. Who else? Right. Who can I look <laughs> at? Whether <laughs> whether Camelot or the monarchy. Who can I look at inside this deeply constructed world and watch them like become a fixture in it and go to war with it? You remember that non-existent uh, transitional title card sequence for Shiva Baby? How do we have that be a whole movie about a famous woman who was damned by the media? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to see Danielle hoof it across a field toward a scarecrow in heels in a beautiful tracking shot, right? Totally. And in the same way that I wanted Kristen Stewart to maybe have some words uh, with Camilla. Nope. These movies, like families, are so fucking withholding. <laughs> Twenty twenty one brought us Spencer. During her Christmas holidays with the royal family at the Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England, Diana Spencer, Princess of Wales, struggling with mental health problems, decides to end her decade long marriage to Prince Charles. Now I have to be honest with you, Chance. What? I can't say that I saw the moment where she decided to end her relationship to Prince Charles. No. Is it no, when they ordered little, KFC at the end? That's leaning a little heavy on uh, perhaps like real life chronology and not the aboutness of the movie. This movie should have been called Princess Diana Goes to KFC. Mm. Sure. Like the popular film from Ernest? the early 2000. Ernest goes to White Castle. Yeah. Okay. No. Harold and Kumar. William and Harry go to KFC. That's it. I like it. With their mom, the Princess of w- Wales. W- yeah. <laughs> Is she here yet? Not yet, ma'am. No. Then she's late. She is late. Your Royal Highness. Mommy. <laughs> family are all gathered in the drawing room. They are waiting. Three days. That's it. They're getting quite serious about you. So stand very still and smile a lot. They know everything. They don't. Mummy, what happened to make you so sad? Well, here, in this house, there is no future. Past and the present are the same thing. Diana, they can't change. You have to change. To be able to do things you hate. You hate? There has to be two of you. It's the real one <laughs> and the one they take pictures of. <laughs> Diana, for the good of the country. It's the country. Now, did you see Jackie? Yes, I've seen it. Is it the same thing as this? Both are searching not for something real, but just like kind of interesting human dimensions of someone who kind of lives 
someone who we can't possibly separate from like media narrative about them. And it puts in two, two actresses who are very good at playing um, minute human dimensions. But, but, but Jackie, you, you get the, you get someone who found some meaning in playing the part. Whereas Spencer would be the opposite. Spencer is a, is a hard earned Exodus movie. Interesting. Yeah. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm not a person for whom the Royal family is that important, that interesting, whatever. I'm not one of these people that woke up in the middle of the night to watch whoever get married to whomever. Um, I, I frankly think it's insane that that institution still exists to this day, but like, there are scenes that feel like they're there as almost fan service that I'm supposed to understand that all this stuff has happened. And I guess I don't get the thing that happened before Diana gets in the car that we opened to where she's driving sort of upset towards where they're having Christmas. Uh, but I don't really get I don't know. Isn't it weird that you kind of have to like know the story a little bit to get why she's the victim here? Um, maybe, I don't know, man, any like historical movie, you, there's like a certain like comfort level with like knowing the characters and knowing the times. Um, I, I get feeling left behind. I definitely turned to my wife, Sarah over and over again was like when Christian Stewart opened her mouth and started speaking in that kind of like, um, breathless retiring anxious way i'm like did diana talk like that and sarah was like yes and then like later on when you have like the bulimia come up i'm like did diana have bulimia and sarah's like yes like i just had to keep asking sure. questions i was like is did this did she really feel that way about prince charles and sarah's like yes <laughs> so it does it definitely helps and i could see feeling like a little alien or maybe just feeling like a this this conflict that the movie believes is is so trenchant that it is a prison movie of sorts. If you don't understand coming in that like the prison is inherently bad, like but maybe you got to see Tim Robbins sitting in the car with the radio on in order for the Shawshank Redemption to make any sense. Okay. I don't know. I guess there's an interesting de- like device here where with the physical device with the with the pearls, the idea that. Um, Diana has gotten the same Christmas gift as her husband's lover and how annoying that is because of how lavish this is, but also how identical and sort of anonymous and how it's just currency. That's kind of the, what ends up being the, the larger takeaway of the movie is that these people are, you know, their, their dramatics are just currency at some point. Um, but I guess I would have wanted to see if that's the inciting incident, I would have wanted to see the breakdown at the restaurant that she describes and her getting in her car. Like, I don't know why we pick up when it gets from, goes from bad to worse. You kind of, for me, I would want to see like where it starts to go bad. And then where, if allegedly this movie is about her making the decision to end the marriage, then how does she get to this decision? If we don't see her kind of opening up that question. Well, I do think that, 
this movie is as much about the royal apparatus as it is about any member of the family. And when she, it's she's showing up late to Christmas Eve dinner, driving herself, having eluded her security detail and, and driven out to the country um, where she came up and where the family is celebrating Christmas in Norfolk. Um, but I think the way that people receive her at the mansion is the is the same as they would have when she when she left them. I mean this this is all about the handlers of the family, embodied most by Timothy Spall, who plays this sort of uh, royal coachman who's kind of responsible for making sure that everyone gets on the scale in this weird event where like you have to gain three pounds to sh- to prove that you had fun or like you know there's constant knocks on the door of like Diana, you are late to sandwiches, you're late to tea, you're late to dinner, you're late to everything. Um, and I think you definitely have enough kind of information about the past and traditions and they won't heat the house. And like, there's this sort of um, self-important but self-flagellating quality to this, to this family that like exudes and she's, she's ready to break free from. I could, I could see being like, there, this movie is not about anyone's specific relationship being slightly bothersome. But it is one of these movies how, like, we talk all the time. We were talking about it in our Minority Report commentary about, like, what's the relation? Is these are these institu- Are there bad actors in, in these institutions, or are these institutions just bad? And I think this movie goes out of its way to be like, none of these people, Charles, Queen Elizabeth, none of them are that cruel to her. They all just sort of wish she would do something a little differently. But this institution is su- ab- as suffocating as it possibly could be. Yeah, I agree that, you know, Spall does a lot of hefty, heavy lifting here with kind of being like, hey, I'm the fucking Navy SEAL British equivalent that they brought in to, like, make sure that you don't make a mess in the tabloids. Uh, right. And then you have Sean Harris as the head chef guy. I, I thought Harris the movie, great. I thought that would be a so much more interesting movie if it was just about the the people in the kitchen, at, like, during this weekend. Like, that's, sure. That's so much more interesting. Like the idea of they have to do this elaborate meal that they know people are probably not going to eat most of and they have to do it in silence and they are only like making little things specifically for specific people because they know, you know, yes, they make this festive meal for for the appearance of it for the queen, but actually everyone wants their own specific non-menu item. And like I – that would be kind of like a fun, you know – more rat tattooey than uh, you know Jackie, uh, which which feels you know like it could have been interesting. I, I don't know. Maybe that's a little. What was that horrendous uh, uh, movie about the uh, Robert F. Kennedy getting assassinated that Gordon Bombay directed? Bobby. Yes, I don't want it to be that. <laughs> Don't shoot down your own idea. I don't know if that's a fair critique of this movie. I do love that idea for another movie, though. I mean, Sean Harris is great. Like, to, to do that kind of, that sort of, you know, the people in the, who work there, whether it be him as the chef or Sally Hawkins as Diana's dresser, you know, it's almost like an insurgent quality to be a real person in this space and to see that Diana herself is a real person. Um and Sean Harris, who's just who's played, you know, he played King Arthur in The Green Knight, and like he plays like such a whispery bastard in the Mission Impossible movies. Well, I was like, gonna it's, say it's 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 really nice to see that he's been able to, uh, you know, reform himself from being an international terrorist and was able to find work in this kitchen. 
Exactly. I love that that sign at the beginning is so striking where it's just it's a permanent sign in the kitchen that says like keep it down they can hear you. But it's and, a note to everybody. Right. Of course, to Diana herself. And this is a movie like you've heard of the royal we. What about the royal they? They just refer to like do they know? Do they know how how are you sure that have you talked have you run it by them? And they never say who they don't say like the queen. They're just referring to the monarchy as though it's like the secret agency from like Parallax View or something. Totally. Yeah, and it really again, like the humans, the the Babadook in this one is is they. It is whatever is waiting on the other side uh, of the door. The and the knocking gets gets louder. And I think much like, yeah, the woman pounding on the ceiling in the humans, yeah, the knocking on the door, I think it's more intense as you know, Diana starts to lose it. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely open for uh, critiques of, of this movie on like a recognizable human level. I, I do think it's, it's intentions with the fable thing are to be like a, like a pretty literary text. And I think on that level, there's like a lot of interesting stuff going on. I talked about this on the year end episode with, with Connor who, who really liked this movie, but um this movie is so like rife with like heavy handed metaphors. Like everyone's yes. trying to say that, oh, Diana's the scarecrow. No, Diana's the fox they're hunting. No, Diana is her picture that will end up on the money. Like everyone is just like, oh no, Diana's Anne Boleyn. You are this, you are this, you are this. And like the movie just has to get out of its own like, like literary sinkhole of like, no, 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 please. Can we get to the point where she can just be a person? And by finally rejecting every metaphor, the movie lays on her, um, you get a little, you get a little freedom at the end, which is nice, but there is a weird way in which like, um, with it's like beautiful, soft focus and how pristine everything is. And it's kind of like, if I, if I push on that, like if I push on any character, will they shatter into a million pieces where it does feel like a little, complicit in her suffocation not in like a ill-willed way but in like a this is a little tough to take way totally yeah oh it it teeters pretty quickly into good bad um Mm -hmm. yeah and it does have well that's like i guess the bigger moral question of movies like this it's like this movie's bread and butter is eventually seeing diana like stick herself with the wire cutter and it's it's like i don't know some of those moments felt a little perverse a little grotesque um where you know oh look at this beautiful flower and how she's beginning to wilt yeah or that she has no choice like but to make herself hideous as in protest or something right and I guess that that's that's also sort of my larger narrative question too is that I haven't seen her do the normal like human things that she probably did by mistake that led to whatever you know uh, quagmire that she's now in with this family. It, it's hard to like it's hard to get why she just doesn't get in the car immediately. Like, what's the thing? Like, what's the shoe that's dropped before that is then alluded to in the scene where Charles comes in and he's like, I've got to talk to you guys. We're kicking her out. But like, he doesn't have to, he doesn't even say that. But like, what's the, what's the moment before when they're like, 
one more, as the Americans say, one more strike, and she's out. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah, you don't have any... Um... And that takes away from like her, too. It takes away from understanding what her motivations are. You know, and I think there's a... As this is a horror movie, there's a certain weakness to not giving the final girl you know, any kind of, any kind of agency herself and any kind of logic in the ways she, she tries to escape. But she definitely has that at the end. For me, there should have been more of a moment and less of it being pathetic when she's at the wall there and the cops are like, Hey, we got to report this. If we saw you at the wall you know, I don't know. The Diana that I have in my imagination is more of someone who would like charm that person uh, and less of please take pity on me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you get some of that with William and Harry and just like her sheer creativity in the games that they play. But you're right. Like there's definitely a lot of like the people knocking on the door. She doesn't really have any moves. She's just like, hold it's on, like, please. That girl that was nice to me in that last scene, I want her back. Right, and that's basically right. her only tack until they get in the car. Yeah, I don't know. You wanted more of Michael Sheen being like, the people's princess. <laughs> yes, totally. More, more evidence of why she is the people's princess. Like, I think the Sally Hawkins scene is effective and Sally Hawkins is good in the movie when she's like, I love you and I love you, love you. And everybody feels this way. But you, you're right. There is not a lot of why. There is only contrast. There is only contrast, yes. Yeah. I think I just wanted a little bit more of, and not with the gore, of course, but just like in the verbal sparring or whatever, more of the character from like Ready or Not, where you have this woman <laughs> trapped in this house and she has to kind of, because she already kind of has that. She like knows the... She knows mm-hmm. the staff well enough to maneuver and know where, like, the, you know, the next day's dessert lives. You know, just taking that to another level of being able to kind of finagle the guards and whatever to get the thing that she wants. I don't know. Give this person a little bit more fortitude. I hear you. But that Johnny Greenwood score. It is a great It is, it a, is great a great score. score. Um, Did you lean over to Sarah and be like, wouldn't the real Diana have had a little bit more fortitude? And does she ap- <laughs> does she vacantly say, yes, Chance? <laughs> yeah, that was, she stopped answering my questions after the uh, bulimia one. Um, but uh, yeah, the the Greenwood score is not only good, it, it, it is itself like rife with conflict. I love how it just has these kind of like ominous and it's jazzy um, stri- yeah well it has crazy ominous like chamber strings and then this like cr- like jazz thing underneath that's clearly I love Diana it. herself like can i be a little but both of them are so mournful the jazz and the string oh I mean, god I, yeah i i get what you're saying i do think the movie is very tuned to itself like the the jazz part of that score is not like bouncing away from the strings they're right. all but i wanted more and... jazz on the screen like i yeah, wanted okay. more improvisation right. and like having the fun that she has with the kids you yeah. know and i think she has a lot of fun too in that scene when she stops the the quail hunt or whatever you yeah. know i just wanted like a little bit more a uh, little bit more of that i feel like i'm being hard on this movie i actually thought it was kind of as uh 
the fans of uh, Shiva Baby would say, a vibe. <laughs> You're so young. I know. I've never, I've never seen you so young. Um, <laughs> no, I think you're right. I, I, like I said, I, I mean, I think every part of the movie is doing exactly what it set out to do. We're just, t- you're taking issue with what it set out to do. I really love, and Lucy, the woman with whom all that stuff. Um, short term, long distance. Wait, yeah, I'm going to red hot, short term. Uh, <laughs> Early powder keg. Yeah, beginning of the new year post holiday relationship. Uh, <laughs> no, we we both love like a, a movie in a house, and I really love how the house is shot in this one, especially that overhead shot when the Porsche pulls up and it's like, ooh, we got like this moat going on here, and then you get like a little forest in the distance. It was it was very cool, and then of course the cinematography is stunning, especially the nooks and crannies, and even like the niceness of the working spaces uh, in a place like that. My God, and this is just like their Christmas house, right? This is Christmas house. Is that a chocolate house joke? Yeah, it was okay. Amazing Spider Man. Yeah, it's a great house movie. Turn up the heat. I do like a the detail. Love a cold house. When the boys come down and they're talking about like, Dad, Charles is really cold, and Diana's like, but why? So why don't they turn up the heat? Like every member of this family is just dealing with the fact that this house is cold for centuries and centuries and centuries. Totally. Like, even the people who would have the power to turn the heat on do not do it. But then I kind of was expecting and wanted. Um, like Diana to be more enterprising with that. Like I thought that her Christmas gifts to them would have been like funny little gloves that she like got at the, at the gas station or whatever, like a little scarf or something like something to show that she's aware of their needs. Cause I mean, that's the, I feel like the popular narrative is that she was like a really good mom to these kids. And like, that was kind of her focus towards the end was not this family, but just the, the well being of the kids. But, you know, this one sort of puts her as flighty, like, oh, I just got you the closest thing to a kid-appropriate thing I could find at the gas station. You know, it doesn't show any sort of thought or caring there. But I don't know. I don't know. This movie has good moments. It has good moments. I'm being hypercritical because I think it, it's such a good movie that could be, like, a great movie. Sure. We should probably talk to bat it back to you. Kristen Stewart's going to be at the front of the line for a potential Oscar win here. What do you think of her in this movie? I don't know. I'm so conflicted. I knew this would come up um, and I've been avoiding it. I don't He's know. Been avoiding I the think... star of the movie who's in every shot. <laughs> right. I think in many ways she handles the script incredibly well. And she, like, delivers these lines very well in an affect that doesn't feel goofy. Yeah. That being said, I just have just an overarching note is that if Diana in this film is the quintessential super bright, happy person that, like, took a 180 because of the environment around her, I just don't know Kristen Stewart as that. Kristen Stewart, to me, always plays this girl, like, the girl who's, like, always – you know, not 
gotten what she wanted and is like pissed about it. Shy, doesn't want to be seen in a way. And doesn't want to be seen. Yeah, she doesn't feel to me like a former socialite who then has like retreated so much into herself that I don't know that like she's now at this at this, you know, marriage ending uh, self-harm state. I don't yeah. know, but maybe that's just my own prejudice coming into the like just knowing what she's been in before. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, I I Underwater, think she works other films. <laughs> that other one was called a uh, uh, Dusk Sunset something with the in the land of women for it's example it's mummies versus frankensteins what's that famous trilogy called is <laughs> bad twilight jokes um uh again i think she's perfectly on pitch for what this movie wants her to do because it's leveraging Kristen stewart's like don't look at me thing with like diana just like not wanting to be viewed as part of this in any way by anyone, including the camera. Um, whether that jibes with like your understanding of Princess Diana as a person, like I think that's what makes this like very clearly like historical fiction. I don't think there's any part of this movie that um, as the crown does that's like leans more toward and that's the way it was. I think that would be a foolish approach with this story anyway. Um, and how dare they cast anyone other than Helen Mirren to play the Queen of England? I just want the audience to know that I'm getting texts about how there's like broken glass in the soup that Sarah is making. And like, that feels like a very like Spencer-esque nightmare dinner that I'm going to come out to. After yeah, just we're chew on those fucking glass bits. Show. <laughs> oh my God. Just pour the whole um, fucking thing all over your face. Um, Spencer is good, bad. Spencer, Obviously. Yeah. Spencer's totally good, bad. Uh, I don't know. And I have trouble with all these renderings of whatever facet of this monarchy story we're doing. Um, And I think this movie, I don't know. Didn't you think it was kind of goofy that it, it made, if it was making that larger comment that, like even the children are, don't even have it that great. They have to open their Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve and not Christmas morning like everyone else. You know, it's like, I don't feel bad about that. That seems fine. There's no real world in this movie, though. There, I know right. I know what you're saying, but like that's a that's a small a, that's, a, that's a crime about the two children who had to <laughs> yes. open their Christmas <laughs> presents the night before Christmas instead of the day of. But then their mommy got them two lobsters from the gas station that they could open on Christmas morning. I hear you. It's a crime in this cloistral privileged context. I I think it's a different movie if we step outside, yes, and see see what she's like and why people like her. And we can if you want to have Christmas dinner with Tiny Tim, I I love you for being so uh, so conscientious of the working class. God bless us, everyone. That's right. Yeah, oh, no, it's a boy. good, it's a good bad. I think a lot of these kinds of stories end up being good bad. A lot of these stories about how having a family is hell on earth end up being good bad. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, a lot of the stories deconstructing the nightmare that it is to have people that are related to you uh, or families that you marry into. Uh, yeah, haunting, terrifying. Not something I'd want to rewatch. 
we picked the category. But exquisitely rendered. And I mean that seriously. Um, all right, Noah. Thank God the holidays are over. Am I right? All right, buddy. Uh, we thank you all for, for listening into 2022. Um, we got some audio commentaries happening over on the Patreon at patreon.com slash be real. If you want to hang out with us over there. Uh, we just said minority report. We're going to maybe we're going to do another one in February title TBD. Um, but yeah, thanks for staying on board and, and thank you buddy for being, uh, the only other member of my podcast fam. Great. I, I feel the same. It's kind of warmth that, uh, fits these movies. See you next time. <laughs>